there, Green Future Growers. Thanks for joining us today. If you're new to the show, I hope you'll subscribe on iTunes or your favorite Android app. And let's get growing. Get your copy of the Organic Oasis Guidebook available today from Amazon for just $26.95. And it's got 12 lessons designed to help you create your own Organic Oasis um, it starts with healthy soil. It talks about building an earth-friendly landscape. It helps you understand the difference between annuals and perennials and how to bring in beneficial insects. It talks about fruit trees and just um, all the lessons that I've learned on my podcast mixed with what Mike and I have done here. Okay, what Mike has done here at Mike's Green Garden and just um, I hope that it will help you on your garden journey uh, to create, like I said, your own organic oasis um, where you can have healthy food and enjoy, um, you know, a very special place. And most of all, it's good for Mother Earth. Welcome to the Organic Gardener Podcast today. I am so super excited because today is my four-year anniversary of launching the Organic Gardener Podcast. It's January 29th, 2019. Facebook reminded me with my picture from this morning, of course, when I launched. I was so happy and I was walking down the road. That just it was just so amazing. And today I have just a fantastic guest. I know you guys are going to be interested. We're going to learn a ton. She's written this new book called Start Your Farm, The Authoritative Guide to Becoming a Sustainable 21st Century Farmer. Welcome yeah. to the show, Ellen Polishuk. Very good. Thank you. Okay. So, well, go ahead and tell listeners a little bit about yourself. You were telling me you're in Washington, D.C. and you have snow today. Yeah, it's, as you said, just the end of January, and we're uh, having a little bit of snow here. Um, I was raised in the D.C. suburbs. Um, I'm 55 years old, so I've been here a long time, and uh, my whole career has been in agriculture, uh, primarily as a, a vegetable grower. So I was part of a farm called Potomac Vegetable Farms outside of the of the city in the Virginia suburbs and exurbs and uh, had a 25-year career there growing and selling uh, organically grown vegetables, herbs, cut flowers. Excellent. Well, so I always start off my show asking about your very first gardening experience. Like, was it when you were an adult or when you were a kid? Like, who were you with? What did you grow? Yeah. So I, it's a good story because, oh, you know, some, everybody has to start somewhere. But the, the easiest way to describe it is that um, I think I was just born loving plants because they were sort of my favorite pet as a, ch as a little child was to collect indoor plants in my room. Um, and then I got a garden plot in a local, you know, community garden plot when I was like eight and started that was the beginning of planting seeds in the earth and seeing what was going to happen next. So it goes back quite a long time, even though I grew up on a cul-de-sac, you know, the most ideal sort of suburban cul-de-sac environment. Um, somehow agriculture grabbed me and I ended up going to uh, get a degree in horticulture in college. So I've spent my life trying to become the realest farmer I could, starting from not growing up on a farm. So it's been, you know, it's quite a journey. 
So do you want to tell listeners a little bit about like what sustainable agriculture maybe means to you and like how you like, cause did you learn that in horticulture school? Yeah. Good question. Um, as a young person, when I first started uh, working on farms as a teenager, 15, 16, 17 years old, that's when I got, luckily I, I worked on farms that were growing quote-unquote organically, which of course at that time didn't have any legal definition. And then I started getting Organic Gardening Magazine, like everybody else, so that I could keep up and learn and and see what other people were doing. Um, The the term sustainable ag for me is maybe a bigger umbrella of terminology, and underneath that umbrella would be, uh, you know, organic uh, biodynamic, maybe even uh, some just conservation practices that a sort of a regular kind of no-till farmer might um, take part in. So it, it's a fairly broad term, I think, and organic is much more specific, and, and now certainly it's legally defined. Excellent. So do you want to tell listeners, like, I know the questions I'm dying to hear is like, because like, we're really like things in your book that would help people move into becoming market farmers or becoming farmers. Yeah. So um, the book is written with a friend of mine, co-written with a friend of mine, Forrest Pritchard, who is a livestock, uh, you know, a grass-based livestock grower and sells Uh, all of his products retail in the same market where I was in the Washington, D.C., larger area. Um, And our idea was that there's lots of books out there about how to grow things, how to grow animals, how to grow vegetables, how to grow herbs, flowers, all those things. The technical aspects of farming are quite well written about, how to treat your soil, what bugs are, what, what are weed control practices, all that stuff. But what we felt was missing uh, was a book that helped describe the foundational thinking that goes with becoming a farm business. And so that's really our goal of this book is to give people, especially people who are thinking about moving into farming as a business, farming or gardening as an actual income generating business, how, what things they might want to think about, about their personal temperaments, about their strengths and weaknesses, what kind of resources they bring to bear, where to find other resources and help, uh, how to think about the business and financial aspects, uh, how to manage your energy and not burn out and how not to kill your relationships while you're pressing hard uh, to create this successful business. So that's the scope of our book because we felt it was missing out there. Sure. And if there are things there, you know, they're few and far between. And like, like I said, I've been like pouring through JM Fortier's market gardener book again this last week and going through like all yep. the parts I've highlighted, but there's still things that questions I'm wondering, like there's one piece 
well, this is kind of more of a how-to, but, like, he talks about building a, like, reservoir, and my husband's like, that's one of our next steps, because water is always such an issue, but he really only writes, like, a paragraph about it. Like, I'm like, well, what are the next steps, and what do we, what do, you know, like, how does it actually work, and just, you know, there there are books out there, but there's definitely not enough, and then I don't know why I am, like, completely like addicted to business podcasts at this time in my life for the last four years, which like when I was in college, like you couldn't even get me to walk into the business building. I bet like I was so like, Oh, business money. Ooh, like, you know, just this hippie in me, like, you know, I wanted to be an artist and whatever. And now like I I'm just obsessed with learning about entrepreneurship. And, and I think that's part of my personality. Like you're talking about temperament. So, so like, what are some big things that you're seeing that you feel like people don't know that they really should know if they're thinking about becoming a farmer? Well, that's that area of the business mind is probably the most striking thing that that we worry about or that we see missing um, in folks who have an impulse to be a grower. I mean, the impulse to be a grower is not the same as an impulse to be a business person. Those are not the same thing at all. And you really need to have both of those combined in order to run a business that's going to make pay the bills, you know, and and make a living. So we spend quite a bit of time talking about how, you know, getting friendly with numbers. Can you get friendly with numbers? Because they're the whole thing about sustainable ag is to bring together the idea of this ecological balance and the all the beauties that most of us growers are attracted to of being outside, being in the sun, touching the soil, watching the plants grow, this whole nurturing impulse. So we have to combine that ecological care and stewardship with economic stability and having a, a reasonable uh, head for numbers and how, how much is it costing us to grow stuff. And so therefore, what do, does my price need to be so on order? so I can stay in business. So that's the combination. So we talk a lot about that business mindset and some of the specific ideas about return on investment and, you know, how to handle your your money and all kinds of pretty specific um, aspects. That's the main thing. And then we have some conversation in there about thinking about your temperament from other angles, like uh, whether or not you're a perfectionist and perfectionists Good point. In most part of agriculture are not going to find themselves particularly successful. It's, it's a, I think it's, uh, there might be little pieces of, of agriculture where being really super detail oriented and perfectionist will, you'll be recompensed in the market for that. Most of the time we have to say, Hey, 88% Perfect is pretty good. I'm going to go with it. Um, so we talk about some th- things like that. Um, the ability, how do you have the temperament to withstand things never being done? <laughs> right? Sure. A, farm, a farm, by definition, is, is a constant work in progress. You're never finished with anything. You know, you're always growing and learning and more projects and more weather and more seasons, you know, it's just a constant growing process. And for some people that may be 
um, trying. It may be hurtful, you know, they may have a really difficult time going to bed each night knowing that there's a big fat list of things that didn't get finished. So those are the kinds of things that we talk about. I think this is so fitting. Like I think about it a lot uh, from like a teaching aspect because like I have really struggled as a teacher over the year because there's so many parts of my personality that don't fit a classroom teacher. Like I hate repetition and doing the same thing every day. And you absolutely positively have to like, that's like number one, you know, you come in, the kids like are on schedule, like from eight o'clock to three o'clock in the afternoon, just like, you know, and like, so that's a part of my temperament. You know, I like to be, um, I'm I'm a very visual visionary type of person. I'm always like looking into the future and I don't, and the pace of change in education is so slow, you know, and just different things. So I think temperament is such an important piece. And then I am not a perfectionist by any way, shape or form. I like, I love the 88% because that was like, I always got a B plus in school. Like, no, it didn't seem no matter how hard I tried, I was never going to get an A, um, certainly not an A plus, uh, and so, but I always felt like B pluses were pretty good. So I think that's important. Like one question that's been going through my mind a lot lately that I really noticed last summer, maybe it's because we finally found a buyer who said she would take every extra piece of food that we could grow. I started looking at like my kale and my Swiss chard and like really starting to think like, I don't care about eating things that have bugs bites in them and, you know, stuff like that. But like, I don't know that I could bring a lot of the stuff that I would eat into town and like sell it. And so is that part of it? Like, do you want to talk about that at all? Um, We don't specifically go into the idea of uh, a quality standard, but I'm happy to go, you know, to parse that out with you right now, if you're interested. Yeah. And like, like, are there, maybe there's probably like things that we will learn down the line about growing vegetables that look more, you know, and like maybe like we haven't worried, maybe that comes under pest control or something that I'm right. really worried about because I'm just like, ah, protein, I'll eat the bugs, I don't care. Right. <laughs> yeah, it's, I, I think, well, let's just say that probably at this moment in time, there's probably the most capacity for a quote unquote regular person or a consumer to be able to handle imperfection where, you know, there's, there's been a movement now that's written about in the newspaper and talked about on the TV about, you know, less than perfect vegetables. And it's certainly that movement is much more robust in Europe, but it is starting to, to come into the United States where there is a more organized recognition that just because something is, these are usually cosmetic standards, more like shape, you know, that this pepper has this funny shape. And that doesn't mean that it isn't perfectly delicious and nutritious. So it's not a question of whether it's going to rot or not, you know, rotten spots, that's an issue. But it's more a cosmetic standard of shape and size and color. And does it fit in the box nice with the other ones? We're getting much more, I think, positive awareness that Hey, let's let's loosen that up a little bit and let's not throw those things away. Let's not compost them. Let's make sure somebody gets to eat them. Um, so I think that's the good news um, from some aspects. When it comes to bugs, there is I would say zero tolerance, you know, in the marketplace for bugs. It's just oh sure, don't like bugs at all, and it freaks them out, and so. 
um, there's really no respite. There's no place to hide where you're going to be able to exchange a, a product, a vegetable product or fruit product that has actual bugs on it uh, for money. It's just not going to work. No, no, I know. No, I don't uh, think that. But I'm just thinking. Um, and it, I, what makes me laugh is like, I remember when Mike used to enter the fair, he would get so many prizes for like, um, they wanted everything to be the same exact size, like five potatoes or like right. four tomatoes on a branch that were like all uniform size. He was always getting these prizes for uniform size. So it's interesting to see that. No, I don't think people are going to eat bugs for sure in any way, shape or form. But no, but, what I meant is like maybe we're going to have to learn more stronger pest management down Absolutely. the line. Absolutely. I think that's a really interesting point that you're making. Um, I think it's a really good point that there is a difference, certainly, between feeding yourselves, where yeah. your standards of what's okay are definitely going to be lower than what's going to be okay in the marketplace. And even in the marketplace, there can be quite a range. You know, at the farmer's market, you can get away with lots of imperfection, you know, and people sort of expect it because, I don't know, because you're local, sure. because you're standing right there, because they know you. And they know what their weather is like and they know what their garden looks like in the backyard. And so, you know, a leaf of chard that has a little piece missing because somebody ate it. They're like, whatever, it's still chard. But then when you get into the wholesale setting where you're going to sell, you know, to somebody who's going to resell, then it gets the standards get much tighter. And I'm not a I don't have a lot of experience in the restaurant selling business. But there are restaurants, I mean, really, in the perfect world, if, if we could send, if we could determine where every piece of food was going to go, we would send the worst looking stuff to a, a food maker, a, a meal maker, a restaurant, because they're not putting it on the shelf to resell it. They're going to wash it and cut it up and cook it. And so wouldn't that really ultimately be the most perfect place for anybody's seconds to go? But the restaurants haven't taken up that mantle necessarily. Just because it makes sense to us, they haven't said, oh, yeah, that's our role in this system is to take the things that are less than perfect. But that actually is what makes sense. You know, it's funny because when I went to New York last summer to visit my mom, we went on a tour of um, this place, Young's Farm, where I had interviewed the manager and the owner. And um, he showed me all their peach trees. And I don't know how we got on it, but he said, truth be told, the peaches just, they could not grow organic peaches that people would buy from the, they just had too many bumps or bruises or this or that, but they were perfect. They sold like 5,000 pies at Thanksgiving. They had a huge bakery at this farm on Long Island. And so that's what they did. So it was like making this value added product out of these peaches that like they couldn't actually sell in their farm stand very well, or very few of them were the quality. Yeah, Maybe that's part of what got me thinking about, it. I don't know. I just remember walking through our garden last summer, thinking about food in a different way than I had ever thought of it before. And to me, that's part of this mindset shift that you're talking yes. about but i don't want to like i don't want this to be all about our place so like what like what other things do you feel like the most important that listeners learn about farming on a bigger scale well i you know what we talk spend some time talking about is this idea of 
what what resources do you have to come to bear when it comes to creating a farm organism and building up a set of tools and uh, infrastructure there's you know things cost money and sure. there's so the the thing that we talk about is you need to have either time or money or both and that what I find in my consulting business now sometimes and, and in my teaching business at conferences is that I come across folks who have neither one. They have neither time nor money in the, in the sense like this. Uh, somebody writes t- to me and says, uh, I'm on this piece of family land. I got it for free. Um, this is my first season and I have no other job. I have to make my sole income off this garden and I haven't even started yet. And they send me the soil test and I look at the soil and I think, this is not gonna work. You know, you're not gonna make a living on this soil in the first year because your soil is broken. You know, you, you it takes time for soils to heal. And most of the soil that, that we're gonna get our hands on, certainly for free and even for money, is not ready to create your amazing living right off the bat we have some healing and some fixing to do and you can heal and fix things without very much money if you have time right three years five years you can really bring that soil alive through doing good practices or you can have a huge budget and you can bring 50 tons of compost on like our friend jm 48 and you can add all kinds of other amendments that are missing and you can have liquid fertility and you can do foliar sprays and you can buy microbial inoculants and you see what I'm saying? You can do one or the other or both, but you can't do neither. You know, I used to work for this printer and he had this triangle up on the wall in his shop and it always said it was um, cost, time, and quality. And he was like, you can always have two, but you can't have all three. If you want it fast, like FedEx, and you want it quality, um, it's going to cost you. If you want it fast and um, you want the price down, you're going to suffer your quality. If you want high quality and you got lots of time, we can lower the price. And he just, like that one triangle has always stuck in my head. And that, yep, that's I, I think that's so true. I thought you were going to talk about time being like, but that is true about like JM48 does talk a lot about the specific compost that they order and where they bring it from and why he right. pays for it um, instead of building his own. But I thought you were going to say more like time, like turning something over with a broad fork or like I've been like the one page of my book that I've been working on is like this picture of Mike's favorite weeding tools is claw um, cultivator hole. And when I think about he weeds his entire mini farm, which like I said, is a third of an acre with just that one little hole with like the amount of time he spent like that to me, I thought was what you were going to say, like time as far as labor. But I, I, I feel like there's so many golden seeds here that somebody can take a soil test and know it's probably going to take me three to five years. And like one thing I always tell people, like, don't worry about quitting your day job, but go ahead and get a night job. Like when I first started my podcast, Mike and I were delivering the paper at night and that enabled me to really launch this properly. Like, yes. you know, you can't just quit and start a brand new event. Like people are always like, oh my God, you've been doing this podcast for so long. Why aren't you making money from it? But it takes a really long time to build a, an online business, especially starting out from scratch. Like in some ways I feel like I'm going at leaps and bounds 
Because I yeah. like wrote my very first blog post back in 2010. And from th 2010 to 2014, I had zero hits on my website. Like Google Analytics will tell me like zero people ever went there. And then once I launched my podcast, that was a huge shift. Um, yeah. Anyway. So yeah, you're, you're exactly on on target with what I'm trying to talk about. And and the other thing that I find very closely related or almost exactly said, said a different way is that people read books like J.M. Fortier's book and they say, okay, that's what I'm going to do. Yeah. And, and then they go ahead, but they don't buy the 50 tons of compost and they think that they're going to plant, you know, really intensively high population plantings of all these plants but they don't have a soil resource that's going to support it. And guess what? You don't get very good crops. And it's that's a really rude awakening. So if you be careful about following the advice of a, you know, a book or something that you've read, you know, you have to if you don't understand sort of how that person is building a whole system and that each part is somehow contributing to how it's successful. And if you're really going to do JM Fortier style, then you have to do the 50 tons of compost over and over and over again. That's his system. And so if you want the results of a system like that, you got to put the inputs in. Excellent. Uh, so not, not against JM. He's, you know, he's a, he's a, he did, his book is amazing. It's very inspiring. He's doing a great job. So I'm just saying, you know, you get what I'm saying. Yeah, well, it's funny because actually I also was like applying for this customer service job yesterday that's like a remote job. And one of the questions you had to respond to was like, this customer wants their refund. And I was looking through like, and you had to like write up a pretend answer. And I was like looking through these online course sample refund policies and like, this one course, um, she had was like, did you do this step, this step? Like, if you want your refund, you have to prove to me where you actually took these actions. And so, you know, that would be, that's exactly what you're talking about. Like, if you do exactly what he says, step for step for step, you'll probably be successful. But right. who's got the time and the money and, and all that? You know, he didn't do it overnight. It took him and right. his wife, you know, working at other yes. people's places, learning, yes. um, doing different yes. things. Exactly. Um, and I'm glad that you bring that up because it, that's another thing. It's like somehow people think that that farming doesn't require practice or that it isn't a profession you know, especially people who aren't even gardeners, you know, in the outside world, and they just think, oh, well, yeah, I'm sure anybody can do that because they haven't thought about it. But there's a lot we are highly encouraging of working for somebody else and getting paid to learn from by observing somebody else make mistakes on their dime. And you're just getting paid to be helping, you know, and that it's sort of crazy to think that you could go from, um, you know, being a happy gardener in your, in your backyard to launching a business when you, one, you don't know anything about business, maybe two, you may not know anything about marketing, which is separate from business selling, right? Customer service, all those oh, kinds of incredible. Things. Yeah. Right. So there's so much to learn that, uh, it, one needs to go very slowly and to be able to learn from other people's operations, other people's mistakes. That's the goal. That's the best way possible for, for the, and, but that only applies usually to a young person who's kind of loose, who's not tied into a mortgage and doesn't have kids and 
a husband or a wife that's, you know, that's stuck, that needs to be in one specific location. But that's the preferred path is to go work for somebody else for two or three seasons and then launch your business. Uh, well, absolutely. I, I, so just, there's so many things about that. You said, you know, I think, I I think with anything, like I told my mom over and over, I'm like, I wish somebody would have told me when I was in high school that someday I would love running. If I would have known the tricks about learning how to run today, like when I was in high school, I thought you had to run five miles, you know, in an hour. And like, if you didn't run five miles in an hour, you were just like a failure or whatever, like some obscure, or like you had to be able to run a mile without stopping. Like if anybody would ever told me, you know, I'd make a better sprinter or like, you know, running and stopping and walking and running and walking is actually better on your knee. And just like, it's the way you're going to build it up. And like that I could ever run. And I, I think farming and businesses like that. And I think you're going to be inspiring to people as far as like, like telling them that there is a path that they can follow, but that because your business is, profit what is it plan to profits like if they if they do do these things correctly that they will be able to make a profit because i think a lot of people feel like no matter how hard i try i'm never going to make a profit yeah well there's certainly what i call the glass ceiling in agriculture and i don't mean in terms the the way we usually mean it which is that a woman can't uh, move up to the board level at a corporation i mean a glass ceiling on price and all of us in the food business, in the in the growing any kind of food business, are are bumping hard up against the ceiling, which sure. is that Americans in general don't value food like other people in other parts of the world. We are cheapskates when it comes to food and how much we think food should take of our budget. You know, there's just study after study that Americans spend less on food as a percentage of their income than any other country in the world by a long shot. And we can still complain about it. So we don't, you know what I'm saying? And so in terms of profit, there's making a profit. I mean, if you make $10 more than you spent, there's a profit, but that you can't make a living on $10. So not only do you need to be profitable, you need to make enough profit to actually make a living and not have to go have another job. And it's not an easy task when food is not a valuable commodity in our culture. So that's something that I hope somebody out there who's righteous and feisty is out trying to bust through that ceiling so that we can go to, an, go to another level with how much food is worth in this place in America. Well, and I think a lot of it stems from like subsidies that processed food people get and, you know, how do you compete? I mean, it's very hard for me to justify, like I can spend hours standing in the store going, should I buy the organic one? Should I buy the health or the non-organic one? Can I afford, like my mom would be screwing at me for spending this much money out of my budget when I, you know, and just, I am the debate goes back and forth in my head and I'm blessed because my husband grows most of my food, but there's, you know, we don't have a lot of citrus or fruit here as much as, you right. know, and just there's certain things. I don't know. Well, there's every little thing. I mean, there's oil and, you know, nuts and seeds and 
flour and grain and th- all, all kinds of things, coffee. Or, and I just keep thinking about, like, I was standing at the farmer's market once and I wanted to buy this cauliflower and I was like, oh, I'll take this. And then they told me how much it was, like $8 or $11 for this. It was giant and I know it was going to taste so good, but how could you, there's no way I could possibly afford to pay that kind of money for a cauliflower. Right. And, and so, it's, I mean, it's, it's an, an individual battle for each of us, as you describe this battle with what is it really worth and, you know, how much do I have? And so I'm not saying anybody's really got it all figured out. I'm just saying we're really, we really got a long way to go in our culture um, to raise the, the value of food in our minds and in our budgets, for sure. So do you have, like, speaking of numbers and data, like, like, systems that people like will learn that will like tell them these are the numbers you should look at and like this is how you can figure out what crops may be going to be a more profitable prop for your farm or like i don't like how do people go from plants to profits i guess is what i'm getting at yeah a big part of my teaching so it's it's a little bit in the book but it's not a, certainly a big part of the book but in my in my teaching self and teaching work all around the country. Um, I work with some folks out of uh, University of Wisconsin uh, with a tool, a set of tools that are called the compass tools. And they are spreadsheet tools, some designed specifically for vegetable growers, and now a new set of tools designed for livestock growers. And it's called, the, the one that I teach specifically is called the Veggie Compass. And the, it, the goal of the Veggie Compass is for people to be able to figure out what does it cost them to grow each of their products. And for some of us, that's a big list, right? 50 to 75 different products that we grow or, or um, crops. Uh, and, and so the kind of bookkeeping and record keeping that's necessary to determine true cost of of growing is complicated and you know requires quite some time and attention Um, but that's sort of my holy grail that i that i teach and preach and bring to the market farming market gardening community is to show them a set of tools and teach about how to which records to keep and how to ideas about how to keep records so that it isn't so crazy making and show them what's possible with a healthy set of data from your own operation so that you can find out which are my 20 top profitable crops, what are my worst crops, so that you can start making a whole nother set of questions and decisions about what to do next. Why am I losing money on these crops, these five or 10 or 20 crops? What am I, you know, what's wrong? What's, what's, what part of the equation is off? Is it just that I'm not very good at growing it and my yield is no good? Is it that my price is just cannot, is is not a sustainable price? I have a poor marketplace to sell this thing. You know, that's that's what I teach a lot about. It's a little bit in the book, but not primarily because we didn't want to, well, because we didn't want to freak people out. Let's just put it that way. (laughs) It gets, it goes down the wormhole and nobody wants a book that's about record keeping. I'm just going to put it out there. Um, there are some um, some other good sort of farm, really number-rich farm business books 
Julia Shanks's book, The uh, Farmer's Office, is quite good. Uh, there's Fearless Fim Farm Finances, again, out of Wisconsin. Richard Wiswall has a book, The Organic Farmer's Business Handbook, I believe, mm -hmm. where they go super deep into spreadsheets and costs and profits and so forth. So again, some of those books are already out there. And we just hope that ours is filling in this other, the, the stuff that's missing. So you can't get it all in one place. That's for sure. You need a, you know, you need a shelf. Sure. I have both uh, Julia Shank's book and Richard Bourgeois's book. I've interviewed both of them too, but I haven't heard of the Fearless Farm Finances. So I'll have to look into that. So yeah, and that one's almost the most super nerdy. It's actually even co-written by a guy who is, um, I don't know if he works for farm credit exactly, but he, he's a lender. He's the bank. It's the banker trying to explain to farmers, why do we ask for these numbers? What do these numbers, these ratios? And, you know, he just helps you understand what the words mean that a banker and a lender is going to use with you. So that one is really nerdy and excellent. <laughs> So a lot of my guests who have come on have talked about start with the market and find out what is, talk to your farmer's market managers, find out or go to restaurants and see what people like. Is that what you recommend in the beginning or you recommend starting with your soil health or like if somebody was just going to start out and they did inherit their parents' farm or they did find her, maybe they're like us and we have, you know, the 20 acres or whatever, like where do you, where do you recommend people start? Well, Unfortunately, I think the answer is that there is no one perfect place to start, that it's not a linear progression. You kind of have to have a few balls in the air at the same time. And the balls would be, what is the natural inclination of the land that you're talking about? If you are already landed in some way, you've rented or been given or have bought some property, what the property itself has something to say about this. You can't override the natural inclination of that land. So we got to have that ball in the air at once. Then we bring in the second ball, which is your set of skills and temperaments. So if the perfect thing for that land is to grow sheep and you're not an animal person, that's not going to work. Then the third thing is the marketplace. So you got to have all these things are sort of affecting each other back and forth and you have to hold them all up in the air at the same time in order to come to an idea of a, of a farm organism that will actually work, that you want to be a part of, that the land will support, and that has a marketplace that will uh, buy your products. So it's, it's a kind of a three-way, I say. So... It's interesting. I was just reading, like, uh, have you seen that? It's like a Netflix movie about the girl... Um... She won like the Chelsea uh, flower show in England and they made a movie about her on Netflix that's really good. And then she ended up, Mary Reynolds, I think is her name. And then she writes this other book called The Garden Awakening. And the and I've been reading it this morning because it's due back at the library. And she talks a lot about what you're saying, like the land is inclined to do something 
like she actually talks about like a little bit of fairy magic and like walking the boundaries and getting to know the land and like meditating in places and like letting the land talk to you about how it needs to heal and what it and what it needs. She talks a lot about a lot of the things you're talking about. But how do you know what the land's inclination like how do you how are you going to learn that like if you're supposed to be a sheep farmer or that land is meant for sheep like what's a clue that land's meant for sheep? We wanted to get sheep, and our we had a really sad um, a predator ended up getting them. It was just heartbreaking. Yes. Well, I'm not talking mystically about um, like your example. I mean, I'm being very pragmatic, and so land has a lay to it. What is the topography? Does it how up and down and hilly is it? How flat is it? What elevation are you at? How strong are the winds and what direction do they come from? What zone are you in? How deep is the soil itself? If you took a shovel, how how soon are you going to hit a rock impediment, right? Is it six inches, 12 inches, deeper than 12? You don't probably even need to know. So all of those things come to bear in saying, what is this land suited for? Is it covered with trees already? Are you really going to go through the process of having the land cleared and having the roots, pull, you know, pushed out the trunks and this and the so forth? So that's that's what I mean. I'm I'm not really um, trying to say people need to access uh, higher powers uh, in order to find out what the land wants. Um, and then you know, and there's professional people that that can help with all of these things. You know, there's. Uh, extension agents, there's uh, natural resources, conservation service professionals that work through USDA, um, that that's their job is they know how to read land. They know how to read soil tests and so forth. And they can really help you get some of those parameters lined up uh, for any certain set of property. If you're not landed and you know that you want to be a carrot farmer, then you go shopping for land that will work for being a carrot farmer. And it's not going to be hilly and shallow. It's going to be flattish and deep. See what I'm saying? Yeah. Excellent. Uh, So before we get to the root of things, we're going to thank our sponsors and affiliate links. Have you ever wanted to learn how to create a small market garden that can feed 200 families and create a generous income? Have you ever wanted to learn how to do manual labor that's pleasant, lucrative, and very much in keeping with a healthy lifestyle? Would you like to learn how to improve the quality of your soil while maximizing your crop yields? Well, G. Martin Fortier discusses biological intensive farming in his amazing book, The Market Gardener, which you can get from Amazon.com. If you just go to the Organic Gardener podcast website and click on Recommended Books, his book was recommended by Joyce Pinson from Friends Drift In way back when I first started. And Mike and I have both read it. It's got great advice in there, things that will help you, whether you're a market farmer or a backyard gardener, be more effective, more efficient, and learn how to love gardening as much as you love enjoying the yummy produce that comes from there. So go to organicgardenerpodcast.com and to the recommended books page right on top. And you can get a copy of his book and support the Organic Gardener podcast at the same time. No matter where you garden, a few key practices can help prevent problems. 
plants, like people, get sick when they are under stress. And I found that if any part of my garden suffers from prolonged stress, insects and disease will move in shortly thereafter. So be sure to water, weed, and check for bugs and diseases regularly. Remove sickly plants at once and dispose of them in the burn pile or trash, since disease spores don't always die in the compost pile. By spotting insects early, you can take swift measures before the problem gets out of hand. This is just a great piece of advice from Erin Bazankian's Floret Farms Cut Flower Garden Grow, Harvest, and Arrange Stunning Seasonal Blooms. If you haven't read this book, you definitely want to check it out if you're doing any kind of gardening, but especially if you're doing flower gardening. And you can get this book or any book at Amazon by going to the theorganicgardenerpodcast.com, click on the recommended books page, and they'll there's a link there that will sponsor or help support the Organic Gardener podcast while getting you a great book. And now let's get to the root of things. If we were going to get to like what I call getting the root of things, which is kind of like a lightning round, you know, some quicker questions, more uh-huh. maybe personal to like your farming gardening experience. Like, uh, do you have a least favorite activity that you have to do to kind of force yourself to get out there and do either in the, on the farm or in the garden or um, the bills? Yes. Well, I, the thing I hate and I avoid at all costs almost completely is wearing a backpack sprayer. I don't care how yummy the stuff is inside, you know, whether it's full of microbes and, and, and compost tea or whatever. I just am really uninterested in wearing a backpack sprayer. I'll do it if I have to, but I hate it. And then my second biggest hate is dragging hoses around. (laughs) They belong, heavy water filled hoses, dragging them around to get the hose to wherever it needs to go, whether it's in the greenhouse or out in the garden. So those are kind of my least favorite activities for sure. Uh, do you think like every gardener farm is going to have to need a backpack sprayer? Like, is that something you uh, run into a lot? Yeah. I mean, anybody that's going to farm on any kind of scale is going to need a backpack sprayer probably for um, some insect control options. You know, if you're going to grow potatoes, you're going to grow green beans, you're going to grow a bunch of crops that either have a caterpillar pest or um, Colorado potato beetle pest. There's really good biological options, but the only way it's going to get out there is for you to spray it. That's interesting. Actually, you know, I was also reading um, Erin, I don't know if you've heard of Erin Benzinkian, but uh, Benzikin. she wrote this book called, uh, she runs the Floret Farm, which is yes. like this huge flower farm in uh, Washington. And yes. she, when one of her favorite tools on there was her backpack sprayer. Or I don't know if it was one of her favorite tools, but it was like on her list of gotta have it tools. Yeah. Uh, so on the flip side, what's your favorite activity to do in the garden? Oh, I love planting and I love harvesting um, most crops. There's some things that are a pain in the neck, but, you know, pulling carrots out of the ground and potatoes out of the ground and beets. And I mean, they're just so, and picking peppers and picking basil and just so many good smells and they're so beautiful and it's just so rewarding to see the fruits of your labor, you know, literally the fruits and vegetables of your labor. It's just, uh, endlessly satisfying for me. 
you know, it's so your passion comes through so intensely there and you can just feel how much you truly love it, which surprises me because I find harvesting like what you're talking about. But then I find like on the grander scale, like even in the mini farm and Mike's like where when he goes down there to pick the green beans, that's like dreaded labor to me. Like, I'm like, oh, my gosh, you're going to be bending over. And that's so much hard work. And just yeah. do you have like harvesting techniques for like on a grander scale? Suggestions well, like things people can do to make it easier? No. <laughs> it's, you know, picking beans is a hard, uh, that's one of the harder, slower sports. And on a commercial scale, it's it's definitely a limiting factor as to how many people can you get down there on the ground, If the, assuming these are bush beans. Um, yeah, because we really, he says he's, he's done with pole beans because they freeze out right as they're ripening every year, he says on him. So he's, he's into the bush beans. Yeah. For me, um, as, as now a, a avid home gardener, the, um, pole beans is perfect because we have plenty of growing season and we haven't had trouble with bean beetles. And so, um, but for when I was a, you know, a full-time grower help having good knees <laughs> helps with picking beans because we would just get right down on our knees, just get right down on your knees like you're in a yoga class and pick those beans right in front of you. And so actually it wasn't hard on your back so much as it was on your knees. So we'd like to switch between which part of your body you're going to torture. Let's do knees for a while and then let's do back for a while and then let's go back to the knees. So I've, you know, on a commercial scale, spent a lot of time on my knees. So in order to save my back, but there's, there's really not a lot of tricks, you know, the plants just grow on the ground, you know, for, for a home gardener, you know, raising, having really high raised beds is really the only answer to make it a little less onerous on, on bending is if you can make the earth come up closer to your hands, uh, then that's less far you have to bend. Yeah. And I do look at Mike a lot and think, well, because I'm always like, what if he says his back hurts? I'm like, you should do some yoga. But then I do think like, I'm like, you're always bending and stretching and just everything, like every motion you make in that garden looks like a yoga move to me anyway. So yeah, uh, I, yeah. I think you're right that um, I think preparing yourself before you go out so that you have maximum mobility is helpful as well as stretching before you go to bed to try to counteract some of the bad things that you've done during the day. I think that is a, a very wise strategy for maximizing how long you're going to enjoy being able to garden. Sure. Uh, I do think, it, I do think it keeps him young and my mom young that they do spend so much time out in their gardens and exercising and doing that kind of thing. Yep. The, on the keeping things, yep. Keeping things moving and doing what, what you love. That's, yeah. That sounds good to me. That's my program I'm signed up for. How about a favorite tool that you like to use? Like if you had to move and could only take one tool with you, what could you not live without? As a gardener or a farmer? Uh, how about one of each? Yeah. Um, as a farmer, my favorite tool was a machine called a spading machine. So I, I farmed at, at a scale where it was tractor extensive. We used a lot of tractors and I love equipment. I love tractors and I love implements. And my favorite one is called a spading machine. And of course it's, it's how you're going to work up the ground, how you're going to till, but it's a really special tillage tool that is 
really expensive and works really, really well. And I just loved having it. So I would take that one for sure. Um, as a home gardener now, probably my favorite tool is a good hand hoe. You know, it's a sharp little hand hoe that um, I like the ones from Johnny's uh, that are just sort of a, a triangle-shaped little uh, piece of metal on the end of a good handle. And uh, that, I think, is something I spend a lot of time with because I use it to plant, transplant, and I use it to mix things up, and I use it to, to do a little weeding. And that's probably my favorite tool for a home garden. Excellent. I think that guy at Young's Farm told me that they use that speeding tool uh, for their farm, too. How about uh, a favorite recipe you like to cook from the garden? Like, what do you like to eat? Oh, my gosh. Um, oh, my gosh. I love to cook everything. I mean, I love cooking and I love eating. <laughs> I can make a million things, you know, from pesto to um, really good tomato sauce. I love canning any kind of tomato product. I like okra pickles and dilly beans and um, uh, sauerkraut. I love making sauerkraut from the farm or the garden. Um, so I don't have a favorite. I have too many things that I love to have one favorite. All right. Well, that sounds good. How yeah. about a favorite internet resource? Anywhere you like to surf on the web or you can recommend? Oh my goodness. Um, <laughs> for anybody, you know, there's, there's certainly a whole pack now of kind of young whippersnapper, um, urban grower kind of people, you know, Curtis Stone, and I can't think of who the other guys are, you know, Michael Kilpatrick and um, Ray. Is he from Tyler. that Never Sink Farm? There's the guy, Connor Crickmore is never seen. Oh, yeah. uh, there's Ray guess... Tyler down in, in near Memphis, Tennessee, who's teaching some classes for Southern growers. There's just... I think he's going to come on and talk about uh, succession lettuce. I don't know yep, who Michael Kopertrick is, though. He's, um, he's got a company called In the Field Consultants and uh, has uh, run something called Small Farm University website. Oh. It's got some really good resources and good lessons on it. Um. So those are things that I know are are really popular now for for the kind of the wannabe and the or the young and up or young or new up and coming farmers are really getting a lot of value out of watching YouTube videos from from all these different sources and it's a, it's a resource that's just yeah surprising given you know for somebody my age you know back in the day what did we have we had organic gardening magazine and that, and you know, and talking to other people live—that was all we had. And so, boy, compared to that, people can sit at home and watch these videos and really get some quite valuable education. Yeah. So, I'm a. Those are very popular, and and I think they're really good quality. And I'm also a big conference goer, so I like doing research on the web. But I, my favorite thing, is to go to a conference and hear live a speaker, and you know, get that live in the moment interaction with the teacher, with the people in the class and so forth. So I'm a big, I love, I still love the old timey uh, sitting in the room and, and taking in a really good talk. Cool. 
And now you're speaking too, so people are going to get to hear your passion and, and yes. expertise. Yep. yep, it's super fun. How, do you have like a favorite book or reading material? You could even mention yours if you want. Oh, well, I mean, I certainly love the book that I wrote. I don't sit around reading it anymore. I spent a lot of time with those words already. <laughs> but uh, two books that I really um, like to point towards because they are such valuable resources in farming and because they are made by our government is two books that come out of the SARE program, S-A-R-E. One of them is, is the cover cropping book. Uh, I think it's growing cover crops profitably or something. These are available free for download or they're like $22 to buy an actual hard copy book. So there's that one. And then there's building better soils for better crops, which I think is pretty much the best soils book written for a person who's not in a college course, written for a regular lay person. I think those are tremendous resources that everybody should have on their shelf. Cool. All right. Well, I'll make sure I have the links for those in the show yeah. notes. Okay. Here's my final question. It's kind of a doozy. Ellen, if there's one change you would like to see to create a greener world, what would it be? For example, is there a charity or organization you're passionate about or project you'd like to see put into action? Like, what do you feel is the most crucial issue facing our planet in regards to the environment, either locally, globally, or on a national scale? Well, I, I saw that question in your list, and um, I thought I would take it and go just a tiny bit sideways and say something kind of unusual. Um, sure. Because obviously I'm, I got lots of feelings about plastic bags all over the world and all that's, you know, that industries should, should have to take responsibility for their products all the way through their life cycle, right? If somebody's going to sell me something in a plastic bag, then they are responsible for that plastic bag. But that, everybody's already worrying about that. So I'm going to say something different. Yeah, but they're not, but go ahead. But it doesn't, right. They're worrying about it. that We haven't gotten anywhere, but it's on the radar I think we should make it illegal to have um, more than 250 chickens in one area. Like chicken, modern chicken houses should be illegal. I live here on the, you know, where the Chesapeake Bay is our watershed. And the Chesapeake Bay is ruined by chicken farming. And if we just said as a people, it's not okay to put 100,000 chickens in one building and the only way chickens can be grown is on little tiny you know like joel salatin style you know little tiny houses that are pulled across the land every day and they eat pasture if we could make a change like that man it would the ripple effect would be huge from a from a, a soil health and bay watershed health perspective. Like that's just not okay with us anymore. We can't do it like that. It's not good for the chickens. It's not good for us. It's not good for the land or the water. Let's just say we can't do it anymore. Now that's radical. That's radical, but it's doable. It's so so totally doable, except for the politics and the money and all that other stuff. But it would de to decentralize just even chicken farming so that it cannot be a commodity commoditized and, 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 you know, where all that pollution is such a big problem. 
um, boy, that would make a big difference. So I'm glad you like it. Oh, I really love it. And like my friend Mary that I interviewed, Mary St. Jock, um, who's in New Jersey, but is also, she also talked about the Chesapeake Bay and just, um, I can't remember what she said about it, but I, I, I remember her talking about that. Uh, but chicken farming, like, is it's just it's just sad for the chickens the way like a hundred thousand chickens in one building. That's that's crazy, and like, right. um, it's definitely something that's near and dear to my heart. And so I'm glad you shared that because nobody else has said that. And I do think it's doable, and I think people like, and and just I talk a lot about we have our chickens for the manure. It seems like so ironic. And then I know. the eggs are just bonus because we we want that in our garden. It's one of our most essential and they're the easiest to keep. And just, I really right. like, we had chickens for a long time and I didn't really have much to do with them because I struggle to keep things in pens and cages and fences. But my husband's always telling me the cages for their protection, it's to That's keep right. them safe. And we've certainly had more than our share of predators getting our chickens, yes. even with the great fence. But, um, yeah, so, uh, but once you get to know them and you have them, you just love them. Like, I can't stand it when we don't have chickens. And and then also having fresh eggs is, I don't yep, know. Yep, they're the best. So that would be a great solution and something that we could do. And I feel like, I hope, uh, I just like the way, the whole way you put it. Like, we should just make this illegal. Like, someday, and Bill Maher even says that, someday our agriculture system, we're going to be like, what were we thinking? How right. were we doing that? Right. So, well, tell listeners how to connect with you. And you just, you've shared so much with us. And thank you so much for spending all this time with us this morning. And You're welcome. Um, I have a website for my business of teaching and, and doing one-on-one -on -one consulting. And it's called Plant to Profit, all spelled with words, no numbers. And that's, that's where the action is. And you can get my email address and you can watch some videos of uh, interviews and little classes that I've taught and um, see some photographs that go. I, I write articles for Growing for Market magazine, which is a really super de duper uh, publication for market growers, uh, vegetable and flower market growers. So that's the best way to connect. Excellent. I just finally subscribed to Growing for Market like two Excellent. days ago. We're finally getting at our first like. I've wanted to do that for so long. Yep, and I finally... Uh, uh, what was I going to ask you, though, really quick about um, oh, your website consulting video? Uh, wait, but, but I found you because you're speaking in Pennsylvania soon. When's that yes. if they want to come see you live? Oh, I have on my website, I have a list of all the conferences that I'm visiting this winter. Oh, cool. They're all around the country. I'm going to be in Oregon, Kentucky, Tennessee, Texas, Pennsylvania, something else. I'm not coming to mind right away. So I'm all over the place, and you can see all those dates on the website if you want to come and spend an hour and a half or some classes or day-long classes in fact, the one coming up in, at the Pennsylvania Sustainable Ag Conference is a one-day, a whole-day class called Start Your Farm. So it'll be full of people with, you know, having a lot in common about thinking about starting a new farm business. So that is um, just coming up next Tuesday. Yeah, like a week from this minute, or next Wednesday, we'll be teaching that class. And that's in, in Pennsylvania? Yeah, it's in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Thank you so much, Ellen, for sharing with us today. And you have a wonderful day. You're welcome. Thank you. 
get your copy of the Organic Oasis Guidebook available today from Amazon for just $26.95. And it's got 12 lessons designed to help you create your own Organic Oasis um, it starts with healthy soil. It talks about building an earth-friendly landscape. It helps you understand the difference between annuals and perennials and how to bring in beneficial insects. It talks about fruit trees and just um, all the lessons that I've learned on my podcast mixed with what Mike and I have done here. Okay, what Mike has done here at Mike's Green Garden and just um, I hope that it will help you on your garden journey uh, to create, like I said, your own organic oasis um, where you can have healthy food and enjoy, um, you know, a very special place. And most of all, it's good for Mother Earth. Hey there, green future growers. Would you like your friends and neighbors to create an organic oasis too? Would you like others in your area to learn about earth-friendly practices for their gardens and yards? If so, we would love it if you would share the Organic Gardener podcast with your local community or college radio station today. Thanks again for listening and remember, grow local.